Before we get started with the show, we wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, so less than a cup of coffee, you can help us pay our producers and our social media editor and basically keep the podcast going. If you contribute to Always Take Notes on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, notably a sheaf of successful magazine pitches from myself and Rachel and former co-hosts and friends of the show, uh, which is really useful for any aspiring writer. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with novelist Amanda Craig. We spoke to Amanda about moving from journalism to novel writing, her experience of libel law in the UK, and what it's like to write interconnected contemporary novels. It's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome Amanda to Always Take Notes. Uh, thank you for joining us in lockdown. Um, I wondered if we could start with the small matter of the contemporary novel, because in 2009, you said uh, in an article written for The Independent that there are very few literary novelists writing ambitious, realist novels about the present. Do you think that's still true today? Um, well, uh, I am aware that there have been perhaps more contemporary novels being written. Um, people like uh, my fellow State of the Nation, so-called novelists, uh, Jonathan Coe, John, John Larchester. Um, there are more women uh, perhaps writing this before. I mean, when I, was, when, when I wrote that piece, it was in the teeth of the giant gale that was Hilary Mantel's um, Wolf Hall trilogy. Uh, so I was perhaps particularly cross. Um, I mean, I think there's room for everything. Um, but I'm very pleased that more people do seem to be trying to tackle the modern, the, the contemporary novel now. Uh, and in terms of the the comparisons that are given for your multiple novels with a kind of interconnected cast of characters, I think I, I read a quote from you talking about having this like parallel world in your head that you can you can access. I saw a lot of the touchstones that people were writing about were Balzac and Dickens, but this, I mean, I initially thought of kind of Anthony Pohl of, or, you know, who I don't know where he sits and whether Anthony Pohl is fashionable. That seems to kind of go up and down drastically or Proust or someone like that. I mean, what do you think for, for what you're doing with your work, this, you know, re-entering this, this universe, are you conscious of a, a kind of touchstone or a way of, way of writing that you're trying to, a vein you're trying to work in? Yes, I mean, I've, I've always been, I've read all those people, obviously, and, and I'm always um, aware of them. And, and um, I was perhaps most directly inspired by Balzac. I mean, it, it was from him that I got the idea of the interconnected novel and, and also from Trollope, who was also influenced by Balzac. So I'm very conscious of working in a kind of tradition. Um, it's been very unfashionable. Although um, I noted um, with some interest that apparently David Mitchell is also, who's terribly groovy, um, is also doing this. And I think Sebastian Barry has also just started to do this, bringing back minor characters as major ones. So obviously it's something that's now perhaps more in the air than it was when I started out. Um, but it seems to me such a very obvious thing to do. Um, why invent all these people and these um, relationships and then just um, leave them? You know, in, in real life, when we meet people, we don't tend to just walk away from them and never see them again. Um, they tend to go on and on and on until they die. And sometimes people's stories aren't even over when they die. They continue in some strange way. So I think it's quite an interesting idea um, both aesthetically and almost philosophically. How do you decide which which characters are going to become uh, a major character in a future novel? Um, well, usually um, I start to ask myself questions about them. Um, so I start to think, um, actually, that character's, that minor character quite intrigues me and I wonder what kind of story they would have if I explored it. Um, it's not me dictating in some curious way, it's the character, it feels as if the character starts to sort of pulse more strongly in my imagination 
And um, I also find that I can only finish a novel um, when I know what the next one is going to be. Um, it's as if that kind of pushes, pushes out the one that I'm, I'm writing. Um, we had a... Uh... It, it's very hard to talk about this without sounding incredibly pretentious. No, no, well, well, just to, to take the tone slightly down market, maybe, we had a romance novelist on once, like a real like genre romance novelist, who said that, that the way there are these, like, in their world, there are these sort of twin non-negotiables and that every book has to have a happy ending like it has to be sort of sewn up as a romance but also that commercially the things that work are like franchises that repeat and so the way you you reconcile these two seemingly uh paradoxical things are that you, you peel off a minor character so someone who was like the sort of good looking B, B part doctor or whatever in book one becomes the romantic lead in book two and then essentially this can be continued ad infinitum if the commercial if the commercial imperatives reply um, but I was wondering, just just before kind of coming back to some of the stylistic stuff, could we go a bit back to your your sort of story? Because um, you you went into advertising and then journalism and then novel writing. That's the the way. The way. Yes, I but I always intended to be a novelist. I mean, the other jobs that I did and have done were um, taken entirely to fund that. Um, it was never that I wanted to be. Um, an advertising executive or indeed a cleaning lady or a journalist it was that I needed to do something else to um, earn a living um, and I still barely earn a living as a novelist um, you know I'm I, I'm not like a commercial novelist I, I can't live on my writing I, it, it makes life a bit more comfortable um, but you know, it's never been the case apart from this very extraordinary scandal that I had with my third novel, A Vicious Circle, when because I got paid twice by the, for the same novel, um, we were able to move house, <laughs> uh, which was beautifully ironic. I mean, it was one of those dreadful situations. I don't know if you want me to go into that, but, you know, either I was going to lose the roof over our heads or we were going to have a very much bigger and nicer roof. And luckily it was the latter. We will certainly get into the, the libel issues um, involving that book uh, later on. But in terms of um, the finances, would you say that your career now is a sort of portfolio career supplemented by journalism and, and other income uh, income streams? It's, it's definitely supplemented by journalism, but journalism, as I'm sure you yourselves know, it um, has suffered catastrophically. Um, from the heights that it was at in the 80s, 90s, and even the noughties. Um, so, yes, it's a portfolio career, but fundamentally, unless I have um, an enormous stroke of luck, um, I can only continue to do what I do, really, honestly, because my husband um, became very successful. And I'm eternally grateful for that. Um, and also extremely worried about um, everyone else um, who, you know, I know a lot of very talented writers, um, and I'm really, really worried about uh, my generation, the generation below me, and the generation below that, because um, fiction's always been a very chancy business, but it should not be the case that only people with private incomes can afford to write. I don't know the solution to that. It's really good we get into this because it's a, it's a kind of rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and the, the mm. nittiest and grittiest details. I mean, what do you think are, are kind of possible, possible solutions to, to some of that? I mean, I think, you know, you've campaigned on literary festivals paying authors. Um, yes. I mean, my, my impression as well is that, you know, it, it becomes a, if, if the assumption is, you know, permeated throughout a publishing company that everyone, as you say, can work for two years unpaid in London and that everyone has that set up and that resolve and that no one's really doing it for a living. My, my experience of this is like, it impacts everything. It impacts like how quickly a check is paid and it, yes. impacts, you know, that it, it's sort of, that it's very Detroit to talk about money and, and it has a, you know, I think it's kind of pernicious much be, you know, beyond the, the top layer and the top level of that. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and, and it's also pernicious for publishing itself mm. um, because although those at the very, very top are paid, um, I think upwards of half a million a year, 
um, eye-watering sums. Um, people like my daughter, who's now working in publishing, you know, she's in one of the very, very few publishers who actually pays a London living wage. And, you know, this seems to me to be absolutely outrageous. I mean, I know of people who are being paid things like £14,000 a year. You cannot live in that, on that. Um, and, you know, there's mostly women um, now. And, you know, there are lots of instances of people really kind of having nervous breakdowns because they try to survive and you can't. Yeah. Um, the whole structure seems to me to be wrong. One of the things I think def that definitely needs to happen is that Amazon has to somehow be brought to heel because I do think that's been a really baleful influence. Um, you know, these lovely people who buy one's book on Amazon, I think, are not aware that, you know, when, when they do that, they're cutting out, you know, most of what an author and indeed a publisher needs to survive. Um, when you buy a book from a bookshop, however, you know, you're paying, you know, the, the proper price. And even that is incredibly low. I mean, it's ridiculous that uh, a novel which you can not only read yourself, but give to other people and share, basically costs the same as three cups of coffee or a cinema ticket. Um, I, mean, you know, I mean, obviously if it's a bad novel, you may feel that was money down the drain, but if it's a good novel, you know, you're talking about something that's taken two or three years of someone's life and some of their life force to create. And it's, you know, it's a bargain. <laughs> Um, but this attitude is not generally seen or accepted. And this is very bad news for fiction writers. When I began to be published in 1990, um, you could just about live a sort of reasonable life. You could definitely re afford a reasonable life if you wrote fiction and you wrote journalism. I mean, we could get mortgages nowadays impossible i don't know how anybody does it i mean i don't know how people your age manage to keep body and soul together um you know it's it's one of the things that really worries me uh, with difficulty i'm sure it'd be the answer <laughs> for a lot of young people um could we pivot again back to your sort of journalism days you were a, a critic of children's books uh, what were some of the things that you liked about that job and what are some things that you learned about what really works about fiction for young readers? Um, well, long before I became uh, a children's book critic, I was um, a proper journalist. I mean, I did investigative journalism, I did reporting, I did interviewing, you know, I did the full range. Um, I also re still review adult literary fiction. But what appealed to me particularly about children's books is that I see it very much as um, a continuum of serious literature, but it's one that places um, storytelling and plot at its heart. And, um, you know, there are obviously very brilliant and wonderful children's books, and they're really terrible ones as well. The, the, the whole perception of children's literature has been obviously changed by the arrival of superstars like, like J.K. Rowling and Philip Pullman. It was not at all fashionable when I began to review it. But I've always loved it, um, partly in a way because um, for most of my lifetime, I fought this long battle for storytelling and plot to be... Um, seen as part of literary fiction, an absolutely intrinsic part. Um, it's been very much despised among the literati. Um, you know, there's, there's this attitude that literary fiction should be about style or perhaps philosophy or even character, but it should not be about telling a story. And I feel on the contrary, it is absolutely about telling a story and the reason why literary fiction has lost so much of its influence and its audience is because so few literary writers now tell a story. But, you know, you ask, you know, when someone says, what is this book about? They don't expect to hear, well, it's about 
writing without semicolons <laughs> or it's about writing about um, people who, um, I don't know, are living out some kind of politico-philosophical experiment on an island. They want to know the plot. Mm. And, you know, plot is extremely difficult to do. It is not just a craft, it's also an art. Um, and children's books was sort of like this refuge, this place which plot was not only um, expected, but demanded. Following from that, another question we always put to novelists on the show is whether they are a plotter or a plunger. I don't know if you're familiar with this, this terminology, but it's whether you're someone who works out the entire structure of the novel beforehand, be that in stickers on the wall or, or you know, cards. Very or, like in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very like in Hollywood. <laughs> no, um, not or, or if you just dive in and see where you go. And we've had you know, very accomplished people who've taken completely different approaches. Yeah. So what's, how do you skin that? Particular um, I think it doesn't matter how, how you go about it, but I usually have um, a story more or less arrive in, in my head. And I always know how it's going to begin and how it's going to end. And the immense labour of it is to know everything that happens in between. Um, when I'm working that out, um, I do usually start, um, and it starts with the characters. And then about a quarter of the way in, I write a very rough skeleton. Um, one of the people I learned how to plot from was... was um, someone who perhaps most people don't think of as a plotter, who is P.G. Woodhouse. Mm. And one of his books um, called Sunset at Blandings shows how he plotted out um, one of his, his comedies. And it's the same thing. It's just two or three sentences for each chapter until you get to the end. Um, so I do do that. But I um, also... You know, my, my, the one bit of advice I ever give to other writers who are beginning is um, don't worry if it's no good. Just keep going. And you must keep going until you get to the end. Because once you get to the end, you've got something that you can make better. Um, but if you don't get to the end, you will never, ever make it better. You will just be lost forever in the doldrums. And um, it's terribly hard to, to, to keep pushing that ahead. But I rewrite my novels literally about a hundred times. Um, and what's there in the beginning, um, it's only a, you know, a very vague and clunking version of what you get at the end. Um, one of the great um, things in, in, in my life as a published author has been finding um, this wonderful editor, Richard Bezik at Little Brown, who, to whom I know I can give a first draft and he now won't panic. <laughs> In the beginning, he panicked and you know, was sending me these sort of terrible emails saying, I'm so sorry, it's not working. But now he understands that, you know, I will make it work. He's just got to have faith. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit hair-raising all round. And in terms of what that rewriting looks like, is it moving bits of the plot around? Is it rewriting characters? Is it all of the above? All of the above. Um, because the other thing is I quite often write in this rather patchwork way. And sometimes I will write a scene that I know has to be in, but it might not be in the place that it's in in the published book. Um, and also I have to lose chunks. I mean, one of the other things I really like about working with, with Richard is that um, not only does he have a great sense of humor, but he's completely unafraid of telling me when I'm being boring. And this is absolutely <laughs> critical because um, I think to be a professional writer, you have to take that on the chin. You have to understand that when someone tells you you're being a bore, and you may notice I keep stopping while I'm talking just in case I am boring you. Um, you have to listen and you have to accept it because they, after all, are the audience. 
can we talk a bit about uh, your your early novels? So how how the real the kind of mechanics of it? How did you go about getting an agent? How did you go about getting first first getting published? And then yeah, if we come to the whole uh, the whole libel piece after that. But but if we could yeah start. Yeah, so how did this is always fascinating for our listeners? Like how did you first get a book deal? First get an agent? That kind of thing. Well, that there's a very long version and a, and a shorter version to that. Um, I can give you the longer version, which is that. Um, why don't you? I, hmm? Why go, don't go, I? Go, go, go well, it's it, it's very dreary. I I wrote a first version of what became Foreign Bodies, and um, I met um, a very distinguished um, editor publisher. Um, and you know, he we kind of got on, and he said, you know, I, you you seem to be very interested in reading, and are you writing? And I said yes, and he said, well, do send it to me. And um, so I did, and this novel was um, accepted, and I couldn't believe it. You know, first time lucky. This is fantastic. And then um, one of these putches that regularly happen in publishing happened. And he was sacked um, by, you know, someone more powerful than him, didn't want him there anymore. And so I lost my first editor and with it, the, the hope of having that published, and which was awful because at the time I was um, unemployed. I told a lot of people that I was going to have this book published. And then, you know, I, I, I couldn't understand what had happened, but that was, that was basically what happened. Then um, time went on and I became a journalist, mostly a freelance journalist, and I uh, won a couple of awards as a young journalist, um, in particular something called the Catherine Packenham Award. And um, when someone, um, I think I can't remember if I'd even met them, I I was basically rung up by um, an agent called Deborah Rogers. And she said, yes, 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 show me your, you know, first novel. And then this, and she was the most lovely woman. She incredibly eminent, you know, the agent of people like Ishiguro and so on. But anyone who knew her will not be surprised to know that she... The founder of Rogers Courage and White. Rogers Courage and White had an utterly chaotic office and um, a rather chaotic kind of mind. She lost it. (laughs) She lost... The, 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 this, this first novel. And I was so poor at the time, I hadn't thought or been able to afford to make a photocopy. So it was just gone. Goodness, that's like with um, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, right? Leaving the... Leaving uh, yeah, the well, whatever, you know. <laughs> Pretty dreadful. Um, so I had Was it ever recovered? Well, let me tell you, I sat down and I rewrote this novel um, that was the Foreign Bodies that was then um, uh, about to be published by Hutchinson uh, with a new agent who I'd found. And I think it was the month of publication. I got this letter from her saying, I've just found your first novel. I think it's rather good. (laughs) And yeah, she was very chaotic. So... um, I was able to tell her, thank you very much, but it's about to be published and yeah, I do now have an agent. Um, so, you know, it was a very, very um, up and down, uh, not even beginning. And then the other thing was, you know, the thing that is perhaps particularly unusual about me was that um, because I, th- I think I'd won these these prizes as a young journalist, I was in some way perceived as being a sort of tall poppy. Um, I wasn't at all. I was not on the staff of any newspaper. I had um, no security, I, you know, nothing. But um, I was seen as, as, I think, someone to take down in this rather dreadful way. And um, before publication, the Sunday Times in particular, ran this absolutely devastatingly horrible review of it, which just killed it, stone dead. Um, It was full of inaccuracies and full of uh, what I can only describe as spite, Um, but it kind of seemed to set a precedent. 
and um you know i did have a really awful awful beginning to um being a novelist um it took a long time to get over um i lost a baby i which i think was because i was so upset you know it was really hard even to get out of bed but despite this um i wrote a second novel which had uh, few but better reviews um and so you know i plodded on and i wrote a vicious circle which um kind of was a bit like being relaunched but um you know was a satire on the literary world which by that stage um really horrified me um you know i felt that um i had not been fairly treated i was by now reviewing myself and really quite astonished by the level of um personal animus and um the lack of journalistic integrity actually um you know it was a very different world then in the 90s from what perhaps it is now um it was much more of what um a character in a vicious circle describes to be a blood sport the nastier you were the quicker you rose could you then talk us through what happened with a vicious circle the whole story of its its difficult birth yeah yes well by i wrote it when i was having two two small children one of whom was very ill um t- it took almost 5 years to write um it was very much conceived um as being in this victorian model which you know i've since taken forward um although i'd already started to repeat characters reuse characters even from the first novel foreign bodies um and um there too i had this great misfortune because it was um commissioned by Andrew Franklin who at that time was a you know huge rising star at Hamish Hamilton and Penguin and once again i had this experience of you know a really lovely brilliant sympathetic male editor being toppled by a woman and when that happened i was inherited by um someone called Claire Alexander and um she was a very different kettle of fish and um i found um her how can i put it um quite um antipathetic from the start but you know i had to get on with her so you know i sort of tried to do my best to please her um she was um incredibly patronizing to me um Uh, you know it it it's it's quite sort of hard to um, i mean i don't want to be get you into trouble with libel but you know she she was very difficult to deal to deal with she was known by private eye called by private eye the queen bee of publishing um and unfortunately the person who had given her this epithet was my then agent Giles Gordon so they hated each other um and that i think may have played into um this disastrous uh libel reading i was not an idiot um i knew that some of my jokes might be um perhaps a bit close to the bone and i actually asked um hamish hamilton to give me a libel reading and um they agreed and very luckily um Giles Gordon came with me to this meeting which was with the penguin in-house lawyer and we began to go through the book and to make very small changes you know i was completely honest about the people the real life people who, and there were always more than one who had given me the ideas for particular characters there alexander herself was absolutely convinced that the villain of the book um the boyfriend of the irish waitress mary was modeled on the now dead philip kerr and she wouldn't listen to anything that i said 
um, but she interrupted the libel meeting about 10 minutes into it. You know, it was literally less than quarter of an hour saying, this is an absolute waste of my time. Nobody but a lunatic would wish to claim to be these characters. And she flounced out. Well, you know, the problem, yes. <laughs> the problem is with libel is that there always are lunatics waiting to claim that this character can only be them. And the novel had been due to come out in, I think it was September. And I was on holiday in July. Um, and this letter arrived from this ex-boyfriend who had by then become quite a leading critic. Um, I had gone out with him 15 years previously at Cambridge. We'd had a two-year relationship that had ended um, pretty badly, so badly that I had not seen him or communicated with him in all that time. Um, but he claimed nevertheless to be um, the model for this highly unpleasant um, person in the literary world. Um, and Claire Alexander and Penguin, you know, Penguin having defended people like Salman Rushdie to the hilt, just dropped me in it, um, made no attempt to um, fight this, to counter it, um, announced that the book was being cancelled, and she also gave, um, later on, she gave an interview in Harper's Bazaar claiming that the novel was unpublished. Was there any attempt at the time to defend you as freedom of speech? No, absolutely none. No, not any, not any was in an attempt to defend me, but someone who was employed by Penguin, I was told by several people, went up to Sexton at a party and told him that if he prosecuted me, he could win £30,000. Um, what they didn't reckon on is that I am a really tough person. Um, I, I hope I'm a nice person as well, but I will not be bullied. People my entire life have tried to bully me for lots of different reasons. And um, I, um, you know, was in a terrible state. I was also coping with this very sick baby. But um, I began to think how I could rescue this book and myself because I was absolutely determined I would not be beaten. So the best thing that I did was to ring up the Society of Authors, who are like the um, trades union for, for, for authors. And they knew all about it. And they immediately suggested that I get in touch with this um, great libel lawyer, this man called David Hooper. And, um, you know, I had no money and I was also facing the prospect that if this did go to court, you know, we would lose our home that we had, you know, struggled for years and years to be able to buy. Um, it was a really awful situation. And he, um, said, no, you know, I'll, I'll read this and I'll give you an opinion. And he read it and he couldn't believe that they'd just dropped it. You know, he said, you know, this is this is a ludicrous situation. Um, you know, you can make a few small changes and it's perfectly publishable. So um, as soon as I heard this, I let my agent know. I mean, my agent had, you know, who was a very kind of jolly, mischievous, um, robust man, um, was kind of slightly treating this as, as a great story. I mean, all the nationals were writing about this because it was such a ludicrous situation. But for me, incredibly serious because um, I don't know how aware people are of how the libel laws used to be, but it is the only crime which um, you are not... Um, deemed innocent until proved guilty. You are assumed to be guilty unless you can prove your innocence. That's what was so extraordinarily um, difficult and dangerous for me. And the British law is particularly amenable to claims, right? Yes, and it was worse. I'm one of the people alongside um, Simon Singh who helped to get that changed. 
because it was so i mean you know you can you can look this up on online but it was it was so dreadful for defendants um that it was actually um suppressing not just freedom of speech but things like scientific inquiry mm. um you know it was really awful and um there's no doubt whatsoever that Sexton knew exactly what he was doing because he had himself been the recipient of various libel claims, but as a journalist employed by a newspaper, which is obviously a very different situation. So what was the kind of, this is almost 20 years ago, right, looking back on it, like what, what, what has been the kind of long tail of this? I mean, do you have any interaction with Penguin or, or has, there, has there ever been any kind of apology or, or anything like that? <laughs> No, I mean, I have perfectly good relations now with Penguin because obviously everybody who was employed in that time um, has moved on. Mm. Claire Alexander became a, a literary agent. Yeah. She, um, <laughs> she had the gall many years later to come up to me at a party and say that she would forgive me if I apologised. I did not. If, if, if you, if you apologised. If I apologised, yes. If I yeah. apologised. Um, and I think once again, she was rather surprised not to get her own way on this matter. Mm. Um, so, um, yes. So once the great David Hooper had, had said that he thought this was a perfectly publishable novel, um, I had, I think it was five other publishers then throw their hats into the ring saying that they would love to publish this. I mean, of course they would, because it, you know, this was a, such a scandal that it had escaped into the newspapers. Um, so the net result of that, it, it, it went to Fourth Estate, who did the um, preemptive bid. Um, the net result of that was that, you know, it was published only about um, two or three months later. And I got um, a great deal more money um, and Penguin, having said that my novel was unpublishable, did not dare to ask for their money back. So I got paid twice for the same book. So that was very satisfying. What was less satisfying, perhaps, was that um, one of the reviewers, A.N. Wilson, who'd greeted it most enthusiastically, then decided that he wanted to leave his job as literary editor of the Evening Standard, and he gave it to David Sexton. Okay. Um, since when I am never reviewed in the Evening Standard, and curiously, all the people who do review for it are the ones who give me bad reviews. This may, of course, be entirely coincidental. On the plus side, at least your new novel has been getting lots of glowing reviews, so it's offsetting it a little bit. Do you think that's a temptation with contemporary novels more than any other kind, particularly historical novels, that people try and read into the characters and look for sort of analogous or real life uh you know people that they're based on um i think it's it's a danger and i suspect it's also a reason why um there are so many historical novels um written because obviously it's a way that you can be sure you won't be um accused of libeling someone i mean that said i've certainly read historical novels which are clearly based on real life people and you know they get away with it um and i do always feel this is a rather cowardly thing to do um but you know really and truly my interest in writing contemporary fiction is not to have a go at real life living people i do get perhaps very small details from living people, never just one, usually at least two or three for a character. But, you know, these are people who are from my imagination. They're not drawn from life. I have absolutely no interest in portraying real people in, in my fiction. I think it would just be so boring. Um, real people are always different from fictional characters. For one thing, they are rather less articulate. <laughs> Can we talk a bit about kind of urban rural? It might be the wrong way to phrase it, but your your sort of interest in in getting outside the metropolis and and kind of onto the other side of the bien pensant 
view, be it on Brexit or, or other things. How do you, do you see that again as being in the kind of Balzac, you know, secretary to the 19th century tradition or where does, where does your, and, and, and also fitting on that, how do you, what's your process for, for researching this and, and kind of getting under the skin? Under no, the skin? I mean, absolutely. I'm, I'm hugely influenced by that aspect of um, Victorian fiction. I mean, Balzac, of course, Lost Delusions, which was one of the chief inspirations for A Vicious Circle. Has that passage from the country to the city? Um, I tend to do it the other way around. Um, I've always had a very deep taproot into the countryside in, 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 in two different countries, one in, in Italy where I grew up and where my parents um, had a house in the country, um, and the other really um, Devon and the West Country. Because when, um, when I was 12 years old, I was sent back from Italy to, to England to boarding school. And um, I was incredibly lucky because I, had, I still have um, these wonderful godparents who live in Devon, who became like my other family. Um, so when many years later, um, we were able to afford um, a second home, that is where we, we looked. Um, we're in um, a very beautiful um, part of, of Devon, in sort of northwest Devon. Um, very much sort of warhorse country, if people have seen that film. Um, but I was very, very shocked by how um, impoverished the bit that we found ourselves in um was and is um it is one of the poorest places in europe and this intrigued me more and more um because i suppose in a way partly because of having briefly worked in things like advertising you know i'm very against um the received opinion and the, the idea that if somewhere looks beautiful um it must be a lovely or easy place to live. Um, I've always been interested in this gulf between rich and poor, not out of any particular virtuous moral stance, but because it's you know one of the huge problems of our time. Perhaps it's a problem of every time, but I do very vividly remember what it was like growing up in the 60s and 70s when um, it seemed as if we really were moving towards a more equal society. Um, and now it's very clear that the opposite is the case. So these are interesting things for a contemporary novelist to think about. I think that really comes through in, in The Golden Rule. Uh, to follow up on the sort of second part of Simon's question, what does your research process look like? Because I know you read you know, a couple of newspapers a day to sort of get a feel for the mood of the of the day, uh, to repeat myself. But um, what? how else do you go about preparing um, your research for a book? Well, I, I do read, I mean, it's not just newspapers. I mean, I also read things like The Economist and Prospect and lo local newspapers. Um, you know, there's a lot of reading, but almost more than that, um, there's listening to people and talking to them. Um, I do love people's stories and um, very often to write these kinds of novels, um, you need to do formal interviews. Um, so, you know, right back in the beginning when I was doing things like A Vicious Circle, which is um, at least half of it is not at all about the literary world. It's about the NHS and what it's like to be a, doc a hospital doctor in that. I formally interviewed um, anaesthetists and theatre assistants and nurses and so on. For the Golden Rule, I talked to um, people who are working in these coastal towns or trying to get work. Um, people like the heroine Sister Moore, who's a cook, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a lot that people will tell you. People love to, telling a nosy Parker like me their, their stories. Um, 
as long as you're not um, trying to stitch them up in any way. Which was I was, was going to say, are you, do, you find that, do you find that doing research for a novel, you're perceived differently than if this were a conventional journalistic exercise? I and mean, we had a, we had James mm. Graham, the playwright on, who talks about that, and also Louise Doughty, who said, yeah, you know, mm. people are people are more willing to speak to a novelist than, uh, or it's a different interaction. I find completely the opposite. I mean, I I know Louise, she's a friend of mine. Um, I find that a lot of the kind of person that I'm often interested in talking to is very, either doesn't know what a novelist is or does, or is a bit scared. So I tend to say, I'm a journalist and I'm doing a piece about whatever it is you do. Um, and they're more at ease with that, you know, because they, they expect you to ask quite prying questions. Um, I mean, people are very generous. With Do they ever ask to see the finished article? No, I mean, I've only had one unfortunate experience where someone thought that because um, I was interviewing her, he had the right not only to read it in proof, but some kind of right of veto. And that um, relationship, I'm afraid, terminated with some um, acrimony. Um, nobody has the right. You know, this is my world. Um, you know, I always thank people. If they don't want to be thanked, that's also fine. Um, once or twice, when I was interviewing um, child teenage prostitutes, I actually paid them to talk to me because obviously their time was, was money and they had none. Um, you know, it is it is a tricky thing because, of course, what you're writing ultimately, even if you're using many of the techniques that you learn as a journalist, it's not journalism. It is fiction. And your imagination has to fill in an awful lot of gaps that if you were just doing reportage, you wouldn't be able to do it that way. I mean, that's absolutely forbidden to a proper journalist. But to a novelist, you know, you can you can think about what it's really like to be that person. What has your interaction been with with television? You've had some TV interest in in your work, right? And again, you know, how how what kind of impact has this had financially and and in terms of, you know, involvement on your side? Um it's always um nothing of mine has been made. I had um a film option on um well I've had options on every single novel I've ever written. But, um, you know, they're, they're just a, a, a tiny extra. It's not the huge money that people imagine. I mean, you don't really get m- proper money until something is, is greenlit and it's made. Mm. Uh, and even then, the money you tend to get comes from the additional sales of books. So I had the best um, option I've ever had on The Lie of the Land. Um, that's as far as I know, in some stage of fairly advanced script development, um, I was able to buy a new car with that, which was absolutely amazing. You know, it's the most I've ever had, um, just as the old car died. So that was, that was nice. But normally, um, it's not something that I think about um, because it's like you would go mad. You know, it's, it's a huge distraction. I've known novelists who've won the booker and who've um, then been asked to work, work on scripts of their, their novels. The film never got made and they lost five or 10 years of their creative life. So my attitude is very much that, you know, if anything happens, it's great. An option is fantastic, but I don't write with that in mind at all. I do watch television um, I love good television. I love, you know, good films, but it's not the main thing in my mind. If it were, I'd be writing scripts. What's the What's the next project? What's the Who's the next character that's going to be elevated into their own into a protagonist? Into a protagonist. Well, my next one is about um, three old ladies living in Italy, and they're all uh, characters that people will have met before. Although, as with all the novels, you can read them on their own. Um, so they are Marta, um, the pianist from The Lie of the Land, um, um, uh, the, the grandmother-in-law of 
uh, Hannah in uh, The Golden Rule and a character called Ruth, who first appears in my second novel, uh, A Private Place, who is a former um, shrink. And they're all now living in Italy. Um, and they get involved in, um, I suppose you could call it people trafficking. Goodness. Fantastic. And w- when can we expect to read that? Um, I've, I'm three chapters in, so and it's going quite well. So I would hope to have something to show my publisher in about 18 months. Super. So, well, 2022. Uh, and poor Amanda's only just finished one book and we're like, when's the next one coming? <laughs> well, it's so nice. It's lovely that there's now an audience for them. You know, you, you never expect it. And, um, you know, particularly not after, after my very inauspicious beginning. Um, but it's, it's lovely and I'm so grateful to literally every single person who buys my books because without that I couldn't keep going. Well, on that note, um, thank you for being such a great and candid guest and wishing you both all the best with um, this book and uh, upcoming ones. Uh, thank thanks you again. so much for asking me. It's been a real pleasure and um, good luck with the series. It's, it's very, you've interviewed thank a lot you. of very interesting people. Thank you. Uh, so Simon, what did you make of our interview with Amanda? Uh, I really enjoyed speaking to Amanda. I thought she was very um, kind of warm and candid and clearly had, had had just like a succession of pretty difficult circumstances, not only with the um, the vicious circle situation, but also just with other kind of quite challenging things that she'd uh, experienced during her career and to her credit had just sort of pushed on. Um, and yeah, this this sort of creating a world with her novels with... with um, minor characters who then step out and become major ones in subsequent things i thought that was very interesting yeah i really enjoyed the golden rule actually um and uh, yeah as you say a useful reminder that especially for us journalists that writing a horrible review can have quite significant consequences um i was quite moved by that by her personal experiences yeah definitely she's um interesting to see that see that from the other side um anyway this has been always take notes hosted by me simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media is by Katie Lee. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Patreon at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.